2: What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 22 of Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast with myself, Carlos Clazzo, and Ben Badler. Uh, A lot on the docket today, a lot going on in the baseball world. Although I guess maybe it doesn't seem like that if you are not focused on prospects, if you're just focused on the major leagues, maybe uh, you've been catching up on some TV shows. But Ben, how are you doing, man? Excited to be back on the uh, on the podcast with you. And you have been a busy man over the last few days, my friend. How are you? How are you hanging in there?
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's been a, a wild, but definitely a, a fun few days tracking all these international signings that come in. I think we have probably close to 500 signings, or might even be more by the time we're done <laughs> with this uh, podcast, either signings or signing agreements coming in from the international signings. Obviously not everybody signs right away on January 15th, but most of them do. So <laughs> it was a, uh, it was a busy day talking to a lot of uh, clubs and players and their families and agents and all sorts of different folks down there but uh, it's really an awesome day for for these kids and and their families to to get started with their with their contracts
2: mm-hmm. yeah i wanted to ask you about what what this day is like from your perspective because we all follow you on social media we follow the work on the website so we kind of see it from the outside looking in uh, but it really is like draft day in a lot of ways for these international kids it's It's the big date on the calendar that everyone's looking forward to. Fans of teams are really excited to see which players their team is going to be getting. Uh, Obviously, a lot of the players at the very top end of each class, people are kind of aware of who they're uh, signing with beforehand because of the work that you do. But can you kind of just run through what this day is like for you? It's tough to analyze. At least it seems like it'd be tough to analyze from my perspective because the process is just so different, like we've talked about many times on this podcast and like you've written about for years now, but what, what is this day like for you? Is it is it hectic or are you stressed the whole time? Are you excited? Like what is it like for you? Because just following what you're doing, you are constantly busy and it seems like every signing in the world, you've got picture, the pictures of these guys um, putting their name on paper and having this huge moment. So just kind of take us through a little bit of the process or as much as you, you can and you want to share.
3: Yeah, it's obviously different than the draft, where I mean, it would be like if if they had the draft and you knew where pretty much all of the top fifty picks were going to be ahead of time, right? Because like it's like Jim's uh, draft in two thousand five. That's the closest the draft has ever yeah. come. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, um, yeah. I mean, it's you know there's like a couple surprises here or there. I was like, oh, I didn't realize that kid was going to sign for that much money, or um, you know, a few things here and there. But for the most part, I mean, these, these players like we've talked about a lot have had commitments to sign in place going back multiple years, uh, even longer for this class because normally players would sign on July 2nd. But with the pandemic, MLB pushed the signing date back six months to January 15th. So, you know, there are players who have been committed to sign going back to – I mean, geez, probably the end of 2018, so three-plus years now in some cases. Now that the kids are 16 or 17 years old, so um, not, a, not, like, not a lot of, like, drama, I would say, or, or anything like that, at least as far as a lot of the, the top players in – or at least the prominent, more known players in the class go. But um, it's still fun to just see the all the players signing their contracts – um you know, being there with their families it's it's obviously a a life changing day for for these kids and their families so it's you know signing period i guess technically opens at nine a m but you know we we know where a lot of the top players are are gonna go so it then by about ten eleven a m players really start signing there's this just like huge rush of of players signing their contracts and, um, everybody sending me their, their photos of, um, you know, of, of the signing. So just trying to keep up with all of the messages, probably shoot. If we had, I think we have 470 players (laughs) reported signing now. So it's like
2: phone maybe crashed a few times.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's just so many met, like probably half of them. And, you know, in a lot of cases, multiple people, um, you know the player, or 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 his parents, or his agent, or or the mm. team, or somebody. You know his cousin, <laughs> whoever is, is sending me <laughs> photos. So it's pre yeah, it, it, it's several hundred messages trying to sort through, make sure I don't miss anybody, and, and get everybody's photo up there. Whether it's on my Twitter uh, or on you know my Instagram stories, wherever um, I can do just to just to show everybody what this day is like. I think people have different images maybe in their head of of what you know what happens with international signing so i'm just trying to give people a you know a window into what this what this day is like for for these kids and and their families
2: yeah and, and the international market is is kind of unique for us as well at, at baseball america because i feel like most beats on the site even if one person is largely responsible for something everyone kind of chips in and helps like I'm not the only person who's doing draft content or writing draft reports. Um, but for you on the international side, it's basically just you. I don't, I don't think anyone is, is hopping in and doing, doing any sort of coverage. You're kind of carrying this. So it is definitely a massive day for you, Ben. Uh, we really appreciate all the hard work. It's fun, fun to watch you do the work. Uh, and I'm excited to just get a better feel for all of these classes as we actually get to see some
3: of these guys take the field Yeah. I'll give a tip of the hat to though to uh, Chris and Savannah at BA on the, on the back end helping keep make sure our signing tracker, our signing agreements tracker, is up to date because there's no way I could go through 400 something players all while getting all the photos and uploading them and posting that. So um, yeah, big big props to them helping
2: definitely.
3: Uh, every everything runs smoothly, especially this year. It's on a you know the signing period opens on January 15th uh it's not it just so happens that was a saturday morning so i appreciate yes. them um helping keep everything afloat and yeah and really everything smoothly
2: everything that we do on the website there's there's people behind the scenes that maybe uh don't don't get the recognition that they probably deserve but chris and savannah obviously do a great job for us are there any surprises obviously we'll get to know these classes more as they actually get on the field and start playing but were there any surprises that jumped to you, jumped out to you now that you can kind of see these classes on paper, uh, whether that's with specific players or just um, the perceived quality of classes. There are a couple that have really big classes just, just on the volume of players, Miami, Milwaukee, and Los Angeles. Uh, the Dodgers kind of jumped out to me in that regard, but is there anything in, in, in that sense that, that jumps out to you that you want to know?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, Miami did have a, a pretty huge signing class, just in terms of volume. I don't think there was anybody who's over a million dollars, but, um, and they've also changed up some of their personnel on the, on the international department there, uh, fairly recently. So, um, you know, the money you spend doesn't necessarily correlate with the talent you're bringing in. I mean, I, I think the track record lately of some of the top, top bonus guys is is better than it was 10 years ago but um you know like we're talking about you know when these players are you know a lot of them are committing to teams two plus years ago that's when the actual decision on the dollar amount (laughs) was was being made so these kids these players can change a ton in two months six months let alone a year two years so so a lot of those things can um can change so yeah it's a yeah big signing class for the marlins just in terms of the um the volume of of players that they were able to bring in they've got a new academy um not sure how many teams are going to go within the dsl I, i would think two just based on the uh the number of of players signed but um i mean the orioles it's unusual now to see them being more actively involved with international signings but um you know you could see that change uh, a couple of years ago they're going to be joining the other 29 clubs with with signing players and then seeing you know the Braves get back after they were penalized and uh, unable to sign nearly anyone for uh for a while um you know they got uh, you know one of the better Hitters in the class, at uh, shortstop, you know, maybe third baseman long term, and Diego Benitez, uh, an outfielder, Douglas Cloud out of uh, Venezuela. Pretty pretty interesting kid. But um, you know, it's it's tough. It's you know, we we don't have talent rankings uh this year and we haven't done them the last couple of years at uh at BA just because look the again, like the the idea of putting out a ranking of the top, you know, 50 players top, you know, we've gone to a hundred players in the past on these guys to, to do that now before they're signing. When, I mean, realistically there are, you know, there are players on, you know, who are signing for a million, two million, or, or even, you know, 400,000, $100,000 who the other 29 clubs, you know, for the most part have not, really seen them in a competitive scouting environment for a year, two years, three years in, in some cases. And, and it's not to say, look, there's, I'm sure like some area scouts will, you know, see a, a player who's already committed. If, if you're going to that same trainer's field, cause you're going to see a player for the, you know, the 2023 class or a 2024, he, he might happen to be there and you see him take BP, see him take ground balls. Uh, or you might see him in a game here or there too, because a lot of, te- you know, the teams still want these players playing in games or just at least seeing live pitching because they don't want them to, to stagnate or, or regress. They want these, these players to keep developing. But, but for the most part, these kids are not scouted anywhere near what we're talking about, like, you know, with a, a draft pick at, who's committing to Vanderbilt in ninth grade, he's, he's still going to, be scouted every day leading up to the draft, so it's it's just a totally different process. I'm, I'm sure we would make, you know, I'm sure we would make more money if we put out a, a talent ranking instead of just a, the the yeah. bonus board that we do. But it's just not. I don't know. I, I just think you have to have principles and integrity that we're just not going to compromise on to to do that. So um, I don't know. I'm, I'm excited to just see these players get out on on the field and, and, and have everybody go out and, and see them and, and scout them that way.
2: Absolutely. And kind of before we move off the international talk, we had a few questions today um, that tied into the international free agency. And I wanted to just jump into those here while we're on it. Uh, Christopher Anderson on Instagram asks, how often do you see an international free agent change from one team to another before they sign? Um, and I may as well throw in our second question because it's related to this. We have another question from Twitter. Um, this person asked, "Any story behind why Venezuelan outfielder Anthony Gutierrez flipped from being projected to sign with Washington?" Um, so, kind of two similar questions here, and I just wanted to throw those out
3: to you. Yeah. So, the the first one, um, you know, generally, once a player commits to the, a team, he ends up signing with that team, right? And it's not either like I think people have this perception too that the team is then going to hide the player from other clubs it's it maybe that happened like in the past it, it it's but really it's more of a case where okay i'm you know you're a player you're going around doing all these different workouts you're going to the blue jays academy and the cardinals academy and the tigers academy or all these other clubs are or, or you're going out to all these different showcases and events in you know in the dominican republic or uh, you know, Venezuelan players are going to Colombia, or they're coming to the United States for different events. Well, once you have a, an agreement, then you just stop doing that, right? Like it's, it's not like you're hiding the player from other teams. It's just, all right, well, we already have something in place. So why are we, you know, if, if you're the player's agent or trainer, why would you continue to, you know, at probably a considerable expense, bring this player around to, uh, you know, more or less waste everybody's t- time trying to, uh, you know, scout this, this player and send them around to a bunch of different events. It, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So that's, that's typically what happens, but uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are cases every year where a player will have, you know, something with one team and then something changes. I mean, just going down. I mean, you mentioned uh, Anthony Gutierrez of Venezuelan, outfielder um i I can talk on him in a second like you know simone juan uh willie fan um you know there's just going down our our list this year of, of the top 50 bonuses. i would say probably at least four or five of those guys probably had uh you know something change on them sometimes it's a change from from the club sometimes the uh the player or or the you know the player's family the player's agent changes things and um, you know they end up getting more money from another club somewhere else so it's um, you know it's it's not rare I I, I mean it it happens it it happens uh, you know probably more than people realize just because we don't it it just doesn't get reported a lot and sometimes it's a lot of you know players who sign for you know 200,000 400,000 maybe not the, the highest profile guys but um, yeah I mean you can certainly find several cases of it every. Um, happening every year for for different reasons. Um, with with Gutierrez the, the Venezuelan outfielder who the rangers signed, uh, originally thought he was going to wait a year to sign with the nationals in the next signing period. Uh, they signed Christian Vaquero for close to $5 million, a Cuban outfielder, and that took up pretty much all their bonus pool for this period. So they couldn't sign Gutierrez and, and Vaquero in the same class. So Gutierrez seemed like was going to wait another year to sign. Now, I don't know the whole story of what exactly happened in his case specifically, but if, you know, if, if a player has to, is going to wait an extra year to sign again on top of the extra six months that the signing period got pushed back. There's always some risk that you know the players gonna want to sign sooner, right? And and just get paid earlier. And uh, there's currently a CBA negotiate. Well, I don't know if they're currently negotiating, but <laughs> there's seems you know, like they're, they're, they're currently not. trying, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're, you know, they're currently uh, in the process of trying to make a new CBA, right? We're so between CBA's a lot at of, least. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> so th- there's there's certainly a chance that the next signing class might be an international draft instead of international free agency. And any player for, I mean, we'll, you know, what people in the industry will call the 2022 quote unquote signing class because it's supposed to be July 2nd, 2022, but it's realistically gonna get moved back to to 2023, whether it's a draft or international free agency, but that anybody in that class potentially with an agreement or a commitment, whatever you wanna call it, uh, could end up just being wiped out because (laughs) everybody could end up falling into an international draft. So there's certainly some you know, some elevated risk this year if if you have a player who's going to wait until the the following year when the new or when you think the new bonus pools are going to kick into, you know, whatever the new signing system is. So, um, so yeah, you you definitely have players every year where, um, you know, it initially looks like they're going to sign with with one team and uh, it doesn't, it all doesn't totally matter until you actually put, pen to paper and have a, a signed, an official contract approved by, uh, by the commissioner's office.
2: Well, thank you for those questions guys. Hopefully Ben satisfyingly answered them for you. Um, moving on from international talk. We also dropped the first ranking for the 2022 draft class this week. It's on the website. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, we dropped it on Monday. We're recording this on, I think it's Tuesday, right? I'm not going totally insane. Um, but I wanted to briefly talk about the draft. We'll have more podcasts where we can go a little bit more in depth. Um, but just kind of want to talk about the class as it's set up now. Um, as we're entering the spring college baseball is about to kick off. Junior college is very close to kicking off. Um, and, and it just seems like a solid class. So I wanted to touch on that. Um, Ben, do you have any thoughts on the 2022 draft class or have you been inundated with international stuff?
3: Yeah, I mean, it it seems like we got a just like a really exciting group of high school players who could, I mean, potentially go 1-1 or certainly have a good chance to go in the top five. I'll be conservative and say 10 picks, but depending how the spring plays out, I, I mean, it seems like. Any, any of these top three high school guys we have on our board could potentially go 1-1? Is that a fair statement, do you think? or?
2: Yeah, th- that seems fair. And maybe maybe the fact that, that Baltimore is picking one changes that a little bit. They have been very college-heavy, and their approach at the top has been to take underslot players who they still really like to, to move money around the board. So that potentially changes things. But, but I do think in previous years as well, it's not like they've completely thrown the high school players off their board. They were still considering all of the guys in that range. And just for whatever reason, the, the route they've taken is has been to take a college guy who they still feel very confident in from an offensive profile um, and move money around. So that, that might change it a little bit, but certainly all of Drew Jones Tamar Johnson and Elijah green have gotten consideration or uh, feedback from the industry to be the top player in the class. Um, we have drew Jones in the number one spot. I'll spoil that part of the rankings, but we won't touch on too many specifics of the ranking here on the podcast. Um, just because most of the feedback was to put drew in that spot. Um, but if you talk to a number of scouts, you get a number of different answers. I'm very intrigued with how these three line up come draft day, because they are such different profiles. Um, drew is probably the most classic, Profile that scouts feel comfortable with. He's got a a really strong all around tool set. He's got a projectable body. He's got bat to ball skills. Um, He profiles at a premium defensive position. So I think the industry feels pretty confident in that. Whereas guys like Tamar and Elijah um, have a little, a, a few more risk factors, at least on paper. Tamar, obviously, is one of the best pure hitters that we've seen in many years at the high school level probably the best overall hitter in the class period, high school or college. Um, but he's, he's undersized. He's probably going to be a second baseman. He's close to maxed out physically. And I think there's just a lot of hesitancy in the industry of that profile going in the number one spot. Some teams maybe don't care. They just look and see uh, the hit tool and the power, and they know that they're going to get a left-handed bat that's on the dirt. Um, they feel fine with that. But other teams um, really want to feel confident about the supplemental tools package. and the projection of the body and elijah green is probably the has the most raw upside in the class of any player just given his physicality and tool set and power and speed combination at the same time i think there's more swing and miss questions with him so it's just kind of what do you value what are your biases as an evaluator um in your model how do you view those different profiles uh, and I'm very curious to see how it plays out. But but additionally, I'm excited this year because the college hitters at the top seem much stronger than a year ago, certainly on the outset. And I think also with the college list in general, I'm just kind of excited to see how these players line up throughout the season because I do think there's, there's less feel, or at least it seems like the industry has less feel for the college class, partially because of the new schedule. Uh, with the draft being pushed back, I think a lot of the – the cross checkers and national evaluators just got into that group later than they previously did. Um, they don't feel as confident in their looks. Uh, and so the spring is going to be very important. Obviously the college players have the most movement every year, just given the evaluation periods, given, uh, how meaningful a spring college season is compared to a spring high school season for a player who might not be playing great composition or, or even good composition. Um, but really every demographic in the class seems pretty strong this year outside of college pitching, where there's a lot of question marks. So I think it's a pretty good year uh, overall.
3: You don't think with the, I mean, well, I've certainly got to feel more confident than the 21 class on the college players, where we are going in off the summer of like, <laughs> just not having anything from 2020. Yeah. To look mm-hmm. at, but even, and I, I, I mean, I guess I get the schedule of like, mm-hmm. cause All right. Cause all right. July, the, the draft is in you know, mid July. And then I think what like team USA wrapped up like a few days later with a college national team. And, you know, you're, you're trying to focus, you know, especially if you're a, you know, higher up decision-maker in the draft, like you you gotta be focusing on the current year's draft. But I, I mean, I'm a little, you know, I mean, I would think there's so much more video available now, both from uh, on both in terms of the spring season for for the college, you know, regular season, but also for some of these summer leagues, where I would think teams would would have more, more video and more information than you know, say, even three to five years ago on on college players heading into their draft year, uh, that that they have more, they just have more more of that video available than to them now if they wanted to go back and look at it. But you think, I mean, it sounds like you're here and teams are just, are still yeah, a little and, more uncertain on those guys.
2: And, and it might not be a consensus opinion because you're certainly right. There's, there's definitely more information that you can have kind of at your fingertips if you need to dive into all this and catch up. But I definitely have gotten some feedback that just, there are still some reservations about the schedule and people are still trying to adapt. And I do think it is a problem of probably the, the evaluators who are higher up on the hierarchy who, who, like you said, have to be focused on the current year draft class, just not being able to get out in person to those premium summer events like the USA uh, college national team, like the Cape Cod. If you've got less time at those events, you're going to have much less feel for, for the college group, just personally. And while maybe your staff, you were able to kind of organize and schedule everybody out to get those looks that, that just weren't there. In last year's class during that same time period, I think there is still some uh, hesitancy from a lot of people in in national roles, whether that's scouting directors or cross checkers or special assignment scouts who just seem to have less confidence in how the college class is lining up. Now, everyone would take this schedule and this year over the COVID year, obviously, um, but I do think that's still something that, that the industry, at least across the board, seems to be adjusting to still.
3: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned too, uh, you know, Drew and Tamar and Elijah, and how the well, you know, how my model lines <laughs> lines those guys up. But I mean, it sounds like a lot of a lot of a lot of positive Drew Jones, yeah, feedback. I mean, what, what, what was it that jumped him up so many people's lists?
2: Yeah, I think these three were even our last update, which was like like late, late last summer, I believe. These are kind of the top three hitters. And even last summer at times, I got some feedback saying that drew was the top player in the class. So we never really have had a consensus. Although I think everyone at baseball America, like me, you, I know JJ, we all really liked Ramon personally. Uh, but when doing feedback for this, this first combined list update, just more than any other player, drew seemed to be the one that the teams felt confident with at the top. And I think it really is because you have less question marks overall with him. Like, yes, Tamar might be the more advanced hitter now, but Drew is also pretty good in that regard. His bat-to-ball skills are, are very impressive near the top of the class. His approach um, is praised pretty consistently. Uh, he's got that projectable frame. I think he's up to six four now, and he should add a ton of strength in the future on top of being a very premium defensive center fielder um, who's going to be an asset on that side of the ball as well. So I think for, for at least the teams that have put Drew above Termar and the feedback that I've gotten, it's just you like the overall, the all-around package of tools. You like how the body profiles. You like the defensive profile, I think, a little bit better. And while these people, I think all of them, would probably admit that Termar is more advanced now as a hitter, none of them think the gap between Drew and Termar as a hitter overcomes those supplemental tools and the body profile. Um, so I think it's, it's really that question. We might have talked about it previously, but how will the industry react to a profile like Tamar at the top of the class? And it, it definitely seems like there's at least a significant amount of feedback that um, they would rather take a, take a more well-rounded player like drew up top. If you still feel good about his, his offensive value. Um, again, there are still people out there who would say, yeah, Tamar, no doubt is the top, top prospect. So there's not a consensus here. I would say it's not like Adley Rutschman, uh, where everyone who you talked to at the time was like, yes, this is clearly the top player in the class. Um, it's it's a lot more like last year where there's a group of players you can make a case for and kind of depending on what you like or maybe the looks that you've seen, you'll have a different opinion.
3: Yeah. With the, uh, I mean, with Termar, is it, I mean, uh, is is the concern like, like you said, is it, is it size or just the fact that you, like most people seem to think that he'll end up at, at second base, and let me add some context here and, and spoil another like he's number two, right? Like when well, nobody's yeah. very hard shots. like he's super, super high up mm-hmm. the board. Um, you know, he's extremely high, <laughs> high up the list. But just obviously with the the higher up the list yeah. you go, the more we're gonna pick you apart. So mm-hmm. I mean it is, is is those are the kind of the main concerns on him. I think
2: that and probably upside, um there's some thought that because of Drew's tool set, and even, even with Elijah and some of the other college hitters too, you, you might feel like you have a little bit more upside because of maybe whether it's the power projection or e- even just the safety of if you are not right on your hit tool evaluation, there are other tools you can fall back on. Whereas the concern with people who are more skeptical about Tamar is if you miss on the hit tool and he doesn't hit, what do you have? So if you if you have that conversation with all these players up top, I think everyone would feel more confident in the player that you would have with the Drew Jones who has elite defense and some power projection in the tank or with Elijah Green who is a freak athlete with a speed and power combination that could profile pretty well even if he wasn't a plus hitter. But with Tamar, if you you don't have a plus hitter, then what, what kind of player are you looking at and what's the overall role? I think those are the questions that some people have and that some people are asking because if Tamar doesn't hit at a high level, you've got a solid everyday player. I mean, that's still very good. Uh, but when you're picking at the very top, you want an impact player. And I think that's probably the biggest concern for
3: for people who don't have Tamar number one,
2: if that makes sense.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think Drew Jones certainly has the edge as far as just pure athleticism ability to play or or potential to play a more valuable position if, if you think Tamar is going to second base and Drew is in center field and and Drews defense in center field as a sounds like a chance to be pretty, pretty special too. So I, I certainly give him the edges there uh, and and on speed as well. And it's it's a more, more of a classic body type that you're looking for compared to Tamar, who's. Uh, maybe uh, I don't know. He's officially listed at five nine or five ten. It he was measured <laughs>
2: at one of the summer events. He was measured and it was five eight one ninety four. So that's what we have him listed at. Um, yeah, he's... he was an East Coast Pro or an Area Codes height weight. So they actually measure the guy. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. I I think for me, we, we talk about the question about hitting and how much are, or any of these guys can hit. To me, that the hitting is the most important thing that mm-hmm. you're gonna do. right so for me i i I just have the most confidence in Tamar johnson's ability to hit out of this group and and i think a lot of people probably do even if they have them you know lower than drew or or you know wherever they have them compared to elijah green too but um both both in terms of the the hitting ability and the power i mean yeah, he's you know like you said, he's about five eight, <laughs> a buck ninety or so. Um, to me, it's like a you know this is kind of like what I have talked about before, like what Wander Franco looked like. Yeah, <laughs> when he was that age, like a he's he's not a switch hitter, but he's like a shorter, stockier guy. But he can. I'm not saying he has Franco's you know pure bat to ball because outside of Nick Madrigal, I'm not sure there's anybody who has <laughs> that kind of pure contact skills in professional baseball right now but it's i mean just like franco it's a ton of bat speed and, and he's five foot eight but i mean he he, yeah. he hits the ball like anybody who's six three or six six <laughs> i mean he's hitting balls to the back of the trap in bp at at the pg national showcase so i i see yeah, he just hit who, another one at yeah. the
2: at the pg mlk tournament that's out in the uh i think it's in arizona And he again, just just turned on a ball and absolute monster home run. Yeah, there's no question. There's no question the power. And I think just personally, I'm in agreement with you, Ben. If this list was like my personal list of players, Tamar would probably be at the top. But because it's industry, it's based on industry feedback. That's kind of just where it went. And I also, while I was writing Tamar's report, I don't think that I've ever wrote as glowing an offensive report for a player as I ever have with than with Tamar it's really special and i'm definitely in alignment with you personally um i also thought i didn't know if it was blasphemous but i was thinking about comps for tomorrow and wander like i said he's tomorrow's not a switch hitter um but that is one that i thought about just from a size and like a tool set perspective because i know in previous top 100 meetings before wander uh, came up one of the questions that i had was like okay the supplemental tools here seem very light for a number one overall prospect and kind of like you said when when the hit tool is that good and when the power is that good you can kind of forgive those other tools maybe not being as explosive as you're used to for say a ronald acuna or a bobby wood jr or a j-rod
3: yeah i mean i i don't think it's out of the question that he could end up with seven hit seven power at, at in his peak which is <laughs> i obviously don't speak uh, with a ton of hyperbole but that's I mean, that's how strongly you're known uh, as very much, being very
2: hyperbolic, Ben.
3: Come on. How how much upside? I, I just I think he has as uh, just offensively. Yeah, I mean like you know Franco or you know Jose Ramirez. Where yeah, like all right, maybe maybe it doesn't end up short. I mean I'll, Wander Franco can is at least handling shortstop for for right now. But like that that kind of body type. But maybe if it's that kind of bat, I mean all right, put him at third, put him at second, and and he also has. I mean he has good hands. I really like in, his hands. Yeah. Yeah, good hands and and I would say the same thing, you know, for, you know, for Drew Jones who's who's a spot ahead of him. Like he, he just seems like a baseball rat too. Like he just seems like a really smart, high baseball IQ, high instincts type of player too that's you know, even you know, defensively like if, if you're just looking at some of the the raw tools there, I mean, he does have very good hands, but you know, I think he has a chance maybe to just maybe to just surprise some people and have the, you know, the instincts, the internal clock, things like that, that help everything play up for them too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I want to make sure there's nothing that we're passing up on the, on the draft side that we want to touch on, but yeah, this conversation with these three guys, I feel like is, is never going to stop being fascinating And, and hopefully they all have strong performances this spring, stay healthy, uh because with with that environment i really am excited to see like what the industry does with these three um what the order what the order is for them or maybe what the the bonus payout is since we always love to play money games in the draft you can't always line them up in exactly like the order they went
3: but yeah um, those are obviously like the the big names i don't know if there's anybody who just in doing all your making all your calls to scouts and people around the game if there was somebody who really jumped up to you who's the you know, a big riser over the, the summer or, or the fall, or just somebody who's been getting some more buzz as a guy who's, who's moving up the board more, more recently. Yeah.
2: I just wrote a piece today, actually, that, that went up a few hours before we recorded this podcast on five of five of the bigger risers from our last update to this update. I mean, the, the biggest name on that list is definitely Chase a louder outfit over the James Madison, who is another guy it's not exclusively this high school group that's getting number one overall feedback. I got some, some feedback from scouting directors uh, who thought louder had a case for number one in the class. He is kind of this rare, toolsy college player that you, you typically don't see. I think Dylan Cruz is going to be that next year. Um, but typically, the toolsiest players in every class are, are getting signed out of high school. louder has probably the most exciting all-around raw tool set. In the college class, I would say, maybe there's some other guys who I'm, I'm blanking on that, that are close, but he had a fantastic Cape. um, And he also has really good performance at James Madison. I think, I mean, the Cape, the Cape production for him is crucial um, because he is a small conference player. And because those players um, you're, you're just going to judge their production a lot more critically than you would a guy who's putting up the same, same numbers in the sec or the ACC or one of the power five conferences. So his performance in the Cape was big for him. He started hitting for more power in game with a wood bat. That's encouraging. Um, he, he doesn't have a ton of track record at James Madison because his two years are 2020 COVID shortened year. And then last spring, James Madison was one of the few teams that also just didn't play very many games. Um, so the Cape was massive for him. Um, he's got a chance to play center field, although most people seem to think his frame is just big enough that he's going to move to a, a corner. Um, But some of the best zone recognition, bat-to-ball skills, and power from the left side. And I think teams are just going to, at the end of the day, they're going to look up, see the tool set, see the reports they're getting from their scouts on just the upside he has, and then look at his statistical resume and what he's done performance-wise. And there really aren't a ton of holes um, to poke in his game outside of he is a small school college player, and how much do you bang him for that? Um, Like I said, I think the Cape really helps with that. So he's probably the biggest riser just uh, from our last draft rankings to now, I would say.
3: What uh, I got to ask you too about Cam Collier, because he, I mean, I saw him a pretty good amount just following the 2023 class, uh, because he was originally a 2023 high school player, third baseman, I thought, I think before he reclassified he was I think number two or three on our 2023 list so um you know we have him in the you know certainly the first round range right now on our on our board that we have but I mean he just seems like an interesting guy to me of like what he's at Chipola Junior College this year I mean what happens if he goes out and just like rakes there as a, yeah. as a 17 year old, it's uh, he, he's to me, he's one of the more uh, interesting stories of, of this draft. Absolutely. Yeah. You nailed it. You nailed that one. I think
2: he he is one of the most interesting high school players in the class because of that, because I, I just think he has more leverage to improve his stock and maybe more leverage to, to go down the board. I, I don't know how much mm. he would get penalized as a 17 year old in Juco. It's been a while, it's, I mean, I've never been, I have not covered the draft where we've had a junior college hitting prospect with this much pedigree entering the year. I don't, I don't even know who the best junior college bat would be since 2018 when I really started doing this. There, there are not a lot to point to. And because of that, because of Cam Collier's underclass track record, um, because of how he was viewed during the showcase circuit last summer, I think he's got a chance to really boost up wars. Cause if he goes out as a 17-year-old and hits 340 against guys who are three, four, five years older than him, um, and is showing solid yeah, power playing third base, like that's gonna look fantastic on any sort of statistical model. Scouts are gonna really love that because it's really good competition that he's going to be playing. Um, I don't know he's a, what he's a junior
3: day... in high school, basically. Yeah, <laughs> just by age.
2: He was already the youngest, um, hitter on our top 100 and now he is a college hitter with that age so he's got a chance to really explode up the draft board i would imagine um and he'll be fascinating to see another one that's a reclass from 2023 we just keep stealing talent from your 2023 high school list ben is walter ford Uh, he's a guy who who immediately jumps in as a top 50 prospect in the class he's got stuff that matches up with all of the top end prep right handers in this class and i think teams are gonna at the end of the day, look up and see how young he is. I think he's just the youngest overall player on our top 100. He doesn't turn 18 until December. He reclassified. He's going to be pitching in Florida, um, this year. And I mean, he's got all the tools. He's got a good fastball. He's got a really good slider, good arm action. He's athletic. Uh, I've had scouts put plus future control on him. So, I mean, it's a pretty attractive package. And while I don't think age seems to matter as much to the industry for a pitcher as a hitter, um, it's definitely a good thing that he's this young with this sort of stuff. Um, so he's another one that I think has a chance to rise. Um, and I, w- I would include him in that Kim Collier group.
3: Yeah. Collier, he, he kind of reminded me of Raphael Devers when he was about the the same age where mm-hmm. just big body third baseman. And like you said, it, it's going to look really good on a draft model that a team has internally. If, if he goes out and hits uh, a ton at, at Chipotle as essentially a high school junior (laughs) playing there, but just, I mean, just from a visual scouting standpoint, everything checks out too. I think it's just a really beautiful swing, uses the whole field, pretty big power, even, you know, from a guy who just has a hit first mentality to, um, you know, put the ball in play, use the whole field, make a lot of contact, uh, and then he can just sort of generate that easy power that that comes naturally and and probably will hit for even more power as he learns which pitches to, to turn on and, and drive. So it's uh, just, just a really unusual opportunity to get to see him go out and and play against some Juco guys. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm with you. I think he could be a guy who, whether whether he moves up the board or kind of forces a way down to, to get paid uh, (laughs) later on. I think he's a, A prime candidate for that
2: yeah absolutely I I think the maybe the most interesting part of this class for me is the college pitching and it's just because there's there's no arm that you look at on the college pitching side and feel super confident in there's not a lot of guys here who have the combo of physicality stuff and starting track record There are just not many of those guys in the class and that's why most of the Scouting directors I've heard from view this as a a below-average college pitching class at this point. um, There are a lot of guys who are going to be moving from a relief role to a starting role, and so they'll have a chance to move up boards if they keep their stuff in a starting role and post uh, every week throughout the college season. Um, One of the guys who I'm most excited about is Landon Sims. Um, His stuff is just unbelievable. It was really good going back to high school when he was getting like Craig Kimbrell comps, I think he's got the strikes to start, um, but he was very dominant in a relief role last year. He's going to move into a starter role this year, and Jeff Ponce actually recently wrote a really good story on Sims and a number of the other um, college right-handers in this class just breaking down their stuff, and he profiles extremely well just from a bat-missing perspective. So I really hope he goes out and proves he can start. He might be... I mean, at the end of this, he could easily be sitting there as the top college pitcher in the class and maybe push into a top 10 range. Right now, we don't have a single pitcher on the college side in the top 10. The only arm we have in the top 10 now is Dylan Lesko, who I don't, I don't know what the hole in his, his scouting report is. I don't, I don't know what he does poorly. I don't think he does anything poorly. But really, if you look at the college class, the guy that has physicality, high-end stuff, and a track record of starting – it's Kumar Rocker and he might be the biggest say he might be the biggest <laughs> enigma in the entire class uh, along with Reggie Crawford and Connor Prillip the two college left-handers who again probably would be top 10 um, talents I mean our top 10 talents when they're healthy how the industry evaluates those injuries and, and their lack of track record is anyone's guess but a lot of questions in the college pitching class
3: what is his plan like I, I, a lot of questions on Rocker obviously such a big wild card, but he's he's not in in school. So, how I mean, what how do you evaluate him? I, I assume he's going to do some it's a great question. workouts. Is it? <laughs> you he don't really closer, evaluate but it. like, What's, <laughs> what's going to happen?
2: Most people seem to just assume that he's going to be throwing some bullpens or pitching with an indie League team as we get closer to the draft. I haven't heard anything confirmed one way or the other, so I'm still kind of just waiting until we hear something official. Um, I don't know how, I mean, how much does rocker need to pitch? I feel like this one is tough because it's basically at the end of the day, it's like, what do your doctors say if you're a team? Like, do you need to see him? Do you need to see him go out there and pitch? He was he pitched uh last year and was pretty good the entire year. His, uh, like I was just saying, his his track record of college dominance stacks up with any college arm in recent memory that I can think of as a sub three ERA, tons of strikeouts, two walks per nine. College World Series winner, one of the most dominant breaking balls that you'll see at this college level. Like, do you really need to to see this guy throw more? Like, it seems like the question is really just, what do you think about the medical? And if you're okay with it, you had to feel pretty good. But I can't answer that question. I don't know which scouts can answer that question.
3: I mean, <laughs> I mean if we're talking about the third rounds, if we're talking about a third-round pick, then all right, you know, I could go off of what we saw last year there maybe but i mean if someone's looking at him in the first rounds then yeah i mean I, I would definitely want to go off of more recent reports than you know or, or more recent looks and what kumar rocker showed last year i really oh, man, like you're the, you're the international rocker.
2: guy you're signing guys you haven't seen in three years
3: <laughs> well that's why we don't rank them anymore <laughs> right because it's like ridiculous to, yeah. to do that i mean like one year like yeah, like one year is different you know especially for a college pitcher obviously right but like it's different than two, three years for a, you know, 16, 17 year old international sure. signing. But, but, you know, especially with the, you know, I don't, I don't even know what the medical issue is, honestly. So, but, but the fact that the Mets found something where mm-hmm. they were like, yeah, we're going to take this guy, we're psyched to get him. And then something happened in the medical, they were like, yeah. I uh, I mean, actually, like, that's why we, we it is concerning this anymore. That's, uh, yeah. that's why
2: it is concerning. Cause the teams generally least in recent history have a pretty good track record of identifying those guys who are risky. So I have no idea how to evaluate it. I'm not in a position to evaluate it. And and that is why he's one of the biggest enigmas and head scratchers in the class this year, because it's just an odd situation. And it's not a question of just trying to evaluate what he can do on the field. It's, (laughs) it's a health issue. So I have no idea what the answer is going to be. And I don't, I don't really know where he's going to end up this year in, in this class. I mean, it's a better class to be a college pitcher in this year than last year. Um, But yeah, that could help them. (laughs) Maybe, maybe it does. I mean, maybe at the end of the day, that's, that's what matters, but um, no, it'll be interesting to see. Obviously I'm just excited to see these college guys. I think I, I I might've said this last year, but I think the college class in general is just the latest. I get my personal feel for that group later. Um, So I'm excited to see what all these guys do on the field. But um, speaking of college pitchers, Ben, or not college pitchers, but just pitching in general. I guess some of these guys were college pitchers who we're going to touch on. But our top 100 comes out tomorrow. Um, We have had pieces uh, on the site throughout the week laying out the case for the top three players in the class. They're all hitters. Um, Talia Rodriguez, Bobby Wood Jr., Adley Rutschman. You can read those um, if you have not. But I, I do want to talk about the best pitching prospects in baseball. Um, because we, we spent a lot of time talking about those hitters um, on various podcasts and on the website. But pitchers uh, are a different beast. The track record of the best pitchers uh, on the top 100 is much scarier than the hitters um, just because of the attrition rate. But we've got three pitchers who seem to be at the very top here in Grayson Rodriguez, Shane Boz, and George Kirby. I guess, how would you line these guys up personally? People can see our list tomorrow for how, how they're lined up on that list. But how would you line them up personally? And just what are your thoughts on this trio as like a top pitching group um, for the miners? Is this a strong core? Uh, is it light? Just what are your thoughts on these guys?
3: Yeah, I think it's it's a strong, it's a strong group of, of pitching. I, I think you could, we can could have a reasonable debate on who, who you would take number one of those group of those pitchers between Boz and Kirby and, and Grayson Rodriguez. I mean, Shane Boz's stuff is, uh, you know, especially his fastball. (laughs) And then the slider too, is pretty, pretty electric combination. Kirby with the, with the Mariners coming out and, you know, always having the ability to throw a lot of strikes, but with the extra velocities is, you know, getting projections where he could end up being a, front of the rotation type of starter too which is exciting to to me the guy i would take as the best pitching prospect in baseball right now is grayson rodriguez i think it's just just explosive stuff across the board i think he i think he has a deeper arsenal of bat missing stuff than shane boz i mean i don't think shane boz is gonna have any issues striking out a lot of guys but um I just think you know. You look at the, the fastball, the slider, the changeup, curveball. You know everything. I mean, you have three pitches that could be you know sixty to seventy type weapons uh, at least in there. Um, he has a track record of missing a lot of bats and throwing strikes. And I mean, Shane Boz to you know, to his credit, he, he's throwing a lot more strikes <laughs> than I ever thought he would that was always a a risk factor but he certainly cleaned that up this season so I I mean I certainly think he belongs in this conversation but I, I just think the track record of throwing strikes that's a little bit better with Rodriguez than it is with Boz and just how deep his just how deep Rodriguez's arsenal is compared to Shane Boz, where, where he just has more weapons. To me, that would give Grayson Rodriguez the edge for, for me.
2: Yeah, I'm right there with you. I think initially, we when we all sent in our, our personal list to make the top 100, I had it Grayson Rodriguez, George Kirby, Shane Boz, and they were literally one, two, three right behind each other inside my top 10. I think after going through the process of, of kind of tweaking our list and adding them together, I would have Grayson Rodriguez and Shane Boz as the top two. And I think like you just mentioned and, and kind of laid out the reasons that I would have Rodriguez at the top is just more confidence in his track record of throwing strikes and just more, more confidence in that deeper arsenal. I like all of his pitches again, like you said, not to say the chain boss doesn't have bat missing stuff because I think his stuff is, is pretty electric. But when we're kind of trying to decide between players at this level where everyone's really close and it's just hard um, to line them up with, with much confidence. It's not like a black-and-white situation. For me, just looking at Grayson Rodriguez's track record as a strike thrower just gives me a little more confidence. I don't know what the biggest change was for Boz in, in his strike throwing. Um, it is night and day right. from what he did previously. So, I mean, and it's a credit to the Rays, and you have to feel pretty good about a pitching prospect if the Rays are, are handling them, I would think. Um, and maybe you, you don't feel as confident if, if it's a pending prospect with the Orioles. Um, but I really do like everything Grayson Rodriguez does. There's, there's no real obvious hole in the game for me. His resume is good from a performance standpoint. Stuff sounds great. The feedback from the industry sounds really good. Um, and, and I still really like George Kirby too, but it does seem like it's more of a 1A, 1B. And then maybe George Kirby is kind of next in line. Um, but he does have that elite foundation of command now pairing it with much better stuff since he's been in pro ball. I mean, all three of these guys, I think we averaging 96, 97 miles per hour on their fastball. Um, and if you had told me in 2019 that George Kirby was going to be sitting with a 97 mile per hour fastball, um, I would have thought that he could be right here in this in this range, just given the command that he has. I think probably feel a little bit better about the secondaries with Rodriguez and Boz than Kirby, but maybe I'm doing a disservice to Kirby's breaking stuff and off speed. But all
3: three, I really like. I'd go in the same order that you do. Yeah, I mean we are seeing Rodriguez doing it at a younger age at basically the same level uh you know not a little higher I think than Kirby so um but but Kirby and Kirby missed some time too with the uh some shoulder the shoulder. Is, he did.
2: the shoulder was another one that kind of separated for me. That that's a little scarier and when you're kind of yeah. picking hairs between guys it
3: it's a decider I would think. He he did come back so that that makes me feel better but generally what even you know whatever a team says about a player's shoulder injury just the safe assumption is that it's probably worse <laughs> than, than than what it is or there's probably more risk than maybe even they think internally so um but i i still think he look if, if he can stay healthy there's a lot of attributes in there for him to be a uh, you know, a number two starter, maybe even a, a number one type guy, because like you said, it's some of the best control in the minor leagues with a pretty explosive high octane fastball. Now that he he didn't have maybe a, a, a few years ago um, and, you know, a pretty good track record in in the minor so far, too.
2: With all of these guys, barring barring an injury or something going terribly wrong, they're probably going to graduate sooner rather than later. Um, a lot of the guys in the top fifty on the pitching side have a chance to graduate. So, just kind of looking ahead to a year from now, Ben, are, are there any candidates, um, maybe further down the top one hundred list, or uh, if you're going to go out on a limb, someone who's not on a hundred yet who you like as a as a potential candidate to be the top pitching prospect in
3: baseball next year. I think the probably the safest bet would be Jack Leiter. Just the combination of stuff, polish. I don't think he'll be up. Like I, I doubt the Rangers will fast track him enough. I mean, maybe I don't know. They're spending a lot of money now, so I don't know how the good they think internally that they're gonna be this year so it's weird because his his polish
2: as a as a pitcher and how scouts talked about like how quickly he can move to the majors as a draft prospect paired with what the rangers are doing like it's a perfect combination if they're trying to compete and you want to just push a, a pitcher quickly i think jack does everything on the mound that you would want a, a fast moving pitcher to do um i mean he's been around the game his entire life obviously um, with with his father, was really dominant with um, Vanderbilt last spring. I think maybe what holds me back is like, I, I question, or I don't question, but I'm curious to see how his secondaries play against professional hitters and what sort of command are we looking at with him? Because his walk rate was a little bit higher than I think you would expect given his reputation as a strike thrower and as a pitchability guy in college. So the fastball is dominant. I don't don't really question that, but how much can he dominate with just the fastball in pro ball? And what do those secondaries play like against better hitters would be my questions. But I do think he would, he would definitely be towards the top of a list like this when, when looking ahead to a year from now.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I probably just have more confidence in the secondary stuff and, and just seeing what he did at Vanderbilt. And I mean, basically one season of college baseball is uh i don't know sophomore year covid freshman year uh whatever you wanna whatever you want to call it so um so yeah i think he could be i mean he, he could he could pitch in the major leagues this year he could even exhaust his prospect eligibility and maybe this is a bad pick because of that so <laughs> who knows uh, uh, that could be wrong but i mean he, he'd probably be the safer play but it, it, if you look a little deeper down um you know just like some teenage arms with like I mean, Yuri Perez with, with the Marlins is just fascinating. He's six – I think he's listed now six foot eight, you know, six, 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 seven, six, eight. I don't know. He might still be growing. Um, he was 18 years old last year. He's got really good stuff. And, and normally, I mean, not, not that many pitchers are six foot eight, period, right? But, like, you know, <laughs> once you get into that length of body – on, on a pitcher, you, you worry about their ability to sync up their mechanics. you just have all these long arms and legs flying everywhere. Are you going to be able to repeat your delivery and, and throw strikes for it to ever work? I mean guys like Dylan Batansis and uh, you know Randy Johnson for for a long time, I think until like maybe his mid20s was was an issue for him. So it's always a, it's always a question mark and a concern, except with Yuri Perez, right? Like he's ever since he signs, he, he's never really had any trouble throwing strikes, just pitching. Freakish. Yeah. In, in, in the Dominican Republic and, you know, and obviously just coming the, out this year,
2: the stuff that he has already as a six foot eight, 18 year old, like, I think we talked about this internally, but it seems very odd for a player who's that tall to throw as hard as he does as consistently as he does. In addition to the body control and the command and just how in sync everything seems to be.
3: And, And, and there's, you know, projection for him. What was he up to, I think like 97 or 98, maybe this year, there's projection just physically for him to put on some more, Put on some more weight, put on some more strength, throw Hmm. harder. Like I don't even think we've seen his best stuff yet. But he just has this remarkable body control to be able to throw strikes. I mean, he by age he'd be a high school senior, and he was out there dominating high A hitters. (laughs) He could be in Double A. He should be in Double A this year. Maybe he gets to Triple A by the time he's 19 years old and is pitching in the big leagues. By the time he's 20 i mean that's that's pretty special i mean it's not necessarily just a, you know a race to get to the big league like you know we've had pitchers get to the big leagues at you know 21 who've just been yeah and end up being you know back end type mm-hmm. starters too but just because they're so polished and throw so many strikes but um i mean with perez it's it's already really good stuff there's upside for even better stuff and it's, it's just an unusual profile of a guy who's so polished both for his age and for how long and and lanky he is how how worrying to you
2: is that height I mean it comes up in every conversation that I feel like we've had about Yuri Perez it's just you don't have many players you can point to Uh, it scares a lot of people is it a concern to you that he is that big do you think he's going to run into issues losing his uh, delivery losing his mechanics I mean, I know it sounds like the Marlins want him to add like 20 pounds of strength. As his body changes, is there any more risk that he's going to lose some of the the coordination that he has? Or I feel like most young players, when you add strength, that actually just gets better. Like, is the height a concern to you? Or do you think he is just an outlier where he he's proven he can, he can handle everything that typically tall
3: pitchers struggle with? Do we have yeah, enough I, of a, I, a
2: track record of him doing that for you to feel confident in that?
3: I mean, I think normally you see a pitcher who's seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, six foot seven, six eight, six nine. My, my first thought is, all right, well, this, this guy is going to not throw a lot of strikes. I'm assuming, right? <laughs> He's just for the reasons we were talking about. It's yeah. it's tough to have that many that that length of your levers between your arms, your legs, everything, and you're trying to sync it all up and and repeat it and and throw enough strikes but he already has that. And yeah, I mean, a a lot of times when, when guys get stronger, they're able to hold, you know, their body control improves sometimes, but, but in Perez's case, he, he already, he already has that body control and athleticism to repeat his delivery. So in his case, I'm, I'm not concerned. Um, And, and when you see pitchers who still have more, more room to fill out and get stronger, I mean you, you think about the potential for them to be able to throw harder and, and see their stuff tick up and Perez already has good stuff and I, I think it could get even better, so he has, I mean he has so many of the advantages that you want that, to that you would ideally want to have in a pitcher with his with his size and a lot of the drawbacks that you would typically associate with a pitcher who's that long and lanky he he doesn't he doesn't really have i mean sometimes i i would almost rather have like a five eleven pitcher i i don't really mind shorter pitchers compared to a guy who's six seven six eight just because they typically have an easier time being able to repeat their delivery and and throw more strikes. But in Perez's case, it's, it's like the best of both worlds. I <laughs> It's, it's a yeah, pretty exciting his, player. He threw his
2: fastball for a strike 70% of the time, which I feel like once you get into that 70% range for, for any of your pitches, it's pretty loud, but yeah, it, he, does, he just seems like a freak. He he's already performed at a very high level. Can't wait to see what he does once he gets to, to double a and into triple a and just how fast he moves through the minors. Cause it is kind of crazy how young he is. Um, and, and how much success he's had as a pitcher. It's still just one year, so I mean, maybe maybe this is a guy who takes a step backwards, but there's no reason for us to think that right now. So very excited to to see what he does next year. Any other arms that for you would be in consideration? For me, I think in a lot of for a lot of different reasons, I'm excited about Deal Hall, and I wouldn't be shocked if Baltimore wound up with the top pitching prospect in back-to-back years, and they were just different guys. Deal Hall has more question marks, but his stuff is outstanding. Um, He's always been a guy with with really loud stuff. He struck out almost 16 batters per nine over seven starts this year. It was not a huge sample, but it was double-A, and he was missing a ton of bats. He needs to improve his strike throwing. But really, if he can take a step forward with his strikes – and either just land his secondaries more in the zone or just establish the fastball more while still getting that exceptional chase that he has. I mean, he has all of the stuff that you would want from a the, the top pitching prospect in the game. He's got an incredible fastball, two really good breaking balls, solid changeup. Like all of these are pitches that you could say are plus offerings, and he's got a 40% whiff rate with all of those pitches this past year, which is insane to me. But again, the question for DL has always been how many strikes can you throw? Are you going to be able to throw enough strikes to start? But again, Shane, we had those questions for Shane Boz a year ago and he took a massive step forward in the strike throwing department. Um, So there's no reason for me why DL couldn't do that as well. So he'd be one that I'm looking at and, and really wondering with a a strong, healthy full season, what are we looking at
3: for him a year from now? Yeah. I mean, the last thing you said, the, Healthy full season is is a key because, yeah, I mean, geez, it, w- w- when this guy is healthy, it's, I mean, maybe the best left handed stuff in the minor leagues, right? I mean, it's, it's seeing
2: like 97 from the left side,
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's touching triple digits, you know, slider, change up or missing bats, curveball, too. It's, yeah, I mean, it's another, yeah, a pretty deep arsenal. He, he, the, the strike throwing is an issue, but. I mean, I'll throw out 2020, obviously, but I mean, three seasons, three full seasons, and he's never thrown more than 100 innings. Elbow injury this year. The just the combination of the strike throwing and the durability risk. Uh, you know, I hope he can stay healthy and start, uh, but I also would not be surprised if he ends up, you know, being one of these like nasty multi-inning josh Hader type relievers at some point too just if if he can't hold up under a a starter workload absolutely and he is going to be entering his age 23 season
2: which is five years older than yuri press who we're just talking about so at some point maybe you do just find the path of least resistance and move him to the pen where the stuff is just going to be exceptional
3: um yeah let him have success in that role Uri's like a baby compared to everybody. <laughs> but like, <laughs> exactly. I mean, well, the two other guys would probably just be the, the uh, just the two big high school pitching draft picks from, from the last couple drafts with Mick Abel and, mm-hmm. and Jackson Joe. I mean, Abel's, we, I mean, we talked a lot about, you know, Mick Abel versus Yuri Perez. I mean, it's, I think Abel throws a little bit harder right now. Than Yuri Perez, but otherwise, I mean, just you know, the advantages that Perez has, just in terms of the performance and strike throwing ability, I think is a year younger than Mick Abel too. So, yep, you know, I, I, I'd have a hard time jumping Abel ahead of Yuri Perez right now. Uh, but if you know Mick Abel throws more strikes, which I, I think he that was will,
2: the yeah, that was the maybe the most surprising thing about Abel's season is he was he was always just a very good strike thrower coming out of high school no real red flags in his delivery always got really good feedback on his command for a prep arm. And then you look up after his 44 innings with low a clear water and he's walked 5.4 per nine, which I think he probably will throw more strikes in the future. He needs to land his secondaries more consistently. And I know it it sounded like he kind of got into a little bit of a funk with his mechanics and was trying to sort through some things during the season. I would expect him to be a pretty good strike thrower moving forward, but, i mean even among among Yuri certainly worse strikes this past year, even deal hall through through better strikes than McAbel did on a just a walk basis last year, so that is a bit of a concern um but i I think he probably will bounce back next year, I hope so
3: yeah, yeah like you said all the a lot of the reports previously on him were that you know. It, it, it's a good delivery too i think he is like you said he's worked through some things in that but I, I think there's there's a lot of reasons to believe that he is going to throw more strikes than what we saw last year and and if he does it's um you know potential top of the rotation type starter there's some i don't know automated strike zone that kind of stuff too so like I don't know how much that That's plays into it, but, yeah. um, it's hard, but, you it's, know, it, it's hard it, for it's, me to consistently keep track of all these
2: rule changes in the minors and, and like mentally adjust for them when I'm just kind of looking at everyone's performances.
3: Yeah. But I mean, I, I, think the issues were even just, just beyond, just, you know, beyond that, but I, 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 you know, I'm again the reason I'm bringing him up is because I think he has a chance where we're talking Our 2023 top 100 where he might be. Yeah. Uh, if not the number one pitching prospect in baseball. Then certainly in that conversation and 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 Jackson Job too. I mean, I mean, just look at the raw stuff coming out of his hand. I mean, I could see him going out in low A this year and striking out like 14, 15 per nine. Yeah. It's the tough thing with Job
2: compared to some of these other guys is like Job and Leiter haven't pitched. In professional baseball, yet and with lighter, you feel a little bit better about him just because of his college performance. But if, if Joe pitches in in low A the entirety of next year and just shoves, like how high can he go? I feel like with pitching prospects on our hundred, it the, the guys ranking at the top are always going to be guys who have done it in the double A AA or triple A level. Like At least if you're looking at our, our past few years, the top pitching prospects were guys who are a lot closer. It's very hard for a pitcher who's still in the lower levels of minor league baseball to be that high. So that that would be my one hesitancy with Job just for next year, unless he's just on a super fast track. Or I don't know, how good would he have to pitch if he was just in low A to rank as the best pitching prospect in baseball year from now?
3: Yeah, that's a fair point.
2: That was my only hesitancy with him, but no, from like a from a stuff standpoint, he certainly belongs in the conversation with all these all these other pitchers. I think.
3: The uh, the other guy who I thought like just in our top one hundred conversation where we're like, where what do we what do we do with this guy? Where like was uh, was Austin Martin, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. The when we talk about Jack Leiter and what he did at Vanderbilt and you know his uh you know teammate there, I guess briefly, Austin Martin, when the Blue Jays got him at, at what was it, the fifth overall pick, like they were high five each other, and I thought it was a great pick and they I thought it was they, the best pick in
2: the
3: draft. Him. Yeah, I mean they pushed him super. I I I would say, but you know, they pushed him aggressively, right? Going mm-hmm. to double A after you know, coming out of college and not having played much at college. Cause there wasn't much of a college season in 2020 mm-hmm. was a pretty aggressive move. And then the feedback on him, you know, the, both the performance and the feedback was like, you know, lukewarm. Like nobody yeah. was like burying him, but I don't know. I don't it was know. a far you cry all, from you know.
2: Spencer Torkelson who yeah, like just in their <laughs> draft years, it was like the one a and one B or the one and two. And it was, pretty clear tier from the rest of the group um yeah he's he's tough of our of the hitters on the top 100 he has the most questionable exit velocity numbers these numbers will be up on our top 100 when you guys can read the list so just kind of go through that but among our top 100 hitters i think there were three that have 90th percentile exit velocities in 2021 that were less than 100 miles per hour um, one was Marcela Meyer, who just was drafted as a teenager. Uh, one was Austin Martin. And the third was um, Geraldo Perdomo. So there are real questions about impact that I think he needs to answer. Um, it's going to be questionable upside if he doesn't answer those questions. At the same time, if you had a list of Uh, however you wanted to quantify it, chase rate or zone recognition, I would imagine Austin Martin would rank near the top of that list, even among our top 100 hitters. So he has a real skill in terms of pitch selection, swing decisions, and just how he sees the ball that make me feel a little bit more comfortable moving forward because I do think we've seen seen enough players who have added strength um, and hit for more power down the line than you'd expect. Austin Martin's not the youngest person in the world. He's going to be in his age 23 season. Um, And he's not the biggest guy either. So I don't know how much you can bank on him adding. But I also think his swing wasn't as pure as it was in Vanderbilt for whatever reason during the pro season. Maybe he was like going out of his way to try to hit the ball harder and his swing got messed up. I'm kind of just speculating here. But I think there are some things he can do to drive the ball with more authority in the future. I I really don't know what the – like ceiling power production is going to be for him, but I think he still does enough things well with his approach with the pure hit tool. And he's got a chance to play a premium defensive position that I'm still, I wouldn't want to bury him. I mean, his, his walk rate and on base percentage for a double a hitter as a 22 year old in his first taste of pro ball is, is pretty encouraging, but there are real questions. So I don't know. How how do you view him at this point? I'm kind of mixed, but optimistic, I would say.
3: Yeah, I mean it's interesting because you did the Twins prospects list for us. I did our Blue Jays list. So it was Austin it's... Martin
2: and Royce Lewis. Two two very easy players to get a handle on for the Twins list, right? <laughs>
3: yeah. Uh, with with Martin though, yeah, like you said, the, the strike zone discipline is is outstanding. The the bat to ball skills are are there. I think he has really good hand eye coordination. He's he's a good athlete. There's some really good components to to his skill set but like you said he does not hit the ball very hard and if if we're talking you know an 18 year old high school draft pick that's one thing the older you get (laughs) the the tougher it is to add power now maybe he you know i i think he probably can do some things to you know sacrifice some contact to to try to drive the ball with some more impact um the the other question too is defensively right like the yep. that was an issue at at Vanderbilt but you didn't quite know like all right well are, are they moving him off you know the the dirt just because you know it's Vanderbilt like they're trying to win a national championship right now like <laughs> they're not you know as concerned about how Austin Martin is going to you know what what's best for austin martin yeah uh, as far as his value and when he is 26 years old in in the big leagues they're trying to win right now so if he's having throwing issues like all right well we gotta <laughs> we might have to move this guy now and we have some good alternatives to you know to move him to move him around and it sounded like that was still like it, it, it got better during the year but like it it's still mm-hmm. an issue so so where does he play is it well, the third base or on second or out too,
2: yeah. is is the organization that he's in. And especially after the twins just signed Byron or just extended Byron Buxton. And maybe this is a benefit <laughs> a for him because I mean, Byron Buxton is going to get hurt. And so maybe you're still going to play center field, but I mean, all the Probably feedback that I've too. gotten is that his most instinctual and natural defensive position is center field. And if that's the case, I mean, he's, he's a good center fielder. He's not going to be pushing Byron Buxton off center field any in any anytime soon or in this universe. So if he can't play the infield, if you have issues with, with his throwing or just the consistency or his timing on the infield and you had to play the outfield and you're on the same team that Byron Buxton plays for, well, now you're a corner outfielder. And even if you're a very good defender in a corner, we're talking about a guy with impact questions. How are you profiling as a corner outfielder at this point? So there's a lot of weird things going on with Martin moving forward. There are a lot of real reasons to have questions because of that. And I don't entirely know where I come down on it, but the defensive profile is still a scary one because yeah, there's there's no path right now for him to play like a premium up the middle position, barring massive improvement as a shortstop and Royce Lewis, maybe just playing some other position when he comes back to the game. I mean, he's been out for two years, so maybe just table the Royce piece to this, but yeah, there, there are a lot of things going on with Austin Martin. He's very tough to figure out.
3: Yeah. I mean, the, the optimistic, I would I think be, I mean, take like Whit Merrifield with the Royals, right. Somebody who, you know, second baseman, you know, moves to the outfield sometimes who, um, you know, as you know, coming up through the minor, he's a really good hitter not a lot of power, uh, but, you know, puts the bat to the ball, uh, as a, you know, feel for the strike zone and, and Martins is, is probably even better. Now Merrifield didn't really crack through until his, his late twenties in in the big leagues, obviously Austin Martin is going to get there faster. But if, if he could have that type of, uh, you know, career or, or those type of seasons, I mean, that's, you know, three to four win type player potentially. So that's, you know, that's still a very good player, uh, but there still are, like you said, these concerns about just how much impact and where is it going to be. Just, just these more more questions that have come up as we've actually gotten to see him play more in in Pro Bowl compared to the you know the evaluations on him coming out of the draft and maybe what some people were thinking when they saw you know what the Blue Jays traded for, for Jose Barris, you know, him and, and Simeon Woods Richardson. So, um, again, I Austin Martin will will be in our top 100. I like him. He's just this really mm-hmm. – it's a more unusual profile than maybe what we thought coming out of the draft.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess who, who knows with Austin Martin? We'll, we'll see. Uh, I, I wanted to – I don't know how much longer we have to talk about top 100 stuff, but I did want to talk about a group of prep hitters – that are on the top half of the list, not in the top 10, not top 15, kind of just outside of that group. Well, I feel like when I was going through my personal list, I was as I was lining these guys up or, or trying to line them up, I just found myself really liking all of them. And maybe it's a case of players who are young enough um, and toolsy and talented enough to perform well, um, but just haven't been in pro ball long enough for them to really struggle yet in any significant way. That, that you just have less red flags or, or concerns to point to. But I really like this group of hitters that are going to be in like the 20 to 40 range on our top 100 tomorrow. And it was just kind of curious of these players, who do you like the best? Who do you think could be poised to make a jump and be like a, a high end top 10 talent a year from now? And that, that's a group that that includes Marcella Meyer uh, and Jordan Lawler from this recent draft class. Corbin Carroll, Tyler Soderstrom, Zach Veen, Jordan Walker, Michael Harris, Robert Hassel, Nick York, and Alec Thomas. Um, All hitters who have done a lot of really good things in their brief um, pro stints. And and really, Alec Thomas, a bit of an outlier in this group in terms of level he's climbed to. And that's one of the reasons that I'm personally, I think I was the highest in the the office on Alec Thomas just because of the production and, and the level that he's done it at. Um, but what do you think about this group in general? Um, and are there any guys in that group that, that jump out to you that you like a little bit
3: more than the rest? Uh, I want to see Corbin Carroll stay healthy because I think, I mean, we might be talking about him as a top 15 type of prospect already if he did stay healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think he has that kind of upside. Just, you know, pure hitter, strike zone judgment is is excellent. He's not the biggest guy, but I think there's some some – some sneaky power in there and ability to play a premium position in, in center field. So there's, there's a lot of things I really like about Corbin Carroll, but he does have to stay on the field. Um, Tyler Soderstrom, just the, the feedback that we have on, especially just on his hitting ability or or just the total offensive package. It seems like from day one,
2: just nothing but positive reviews on his, his hitting. It's been unbelievable. Yeah.
3: I mean, you were kind of driving the train on Tyler soldier's I mean, he went, let me just take the, the, back of the first round for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when You were, uh, you were, you were all over, all over that one. But um, yeah, like I, I probably going into it would have had, you know, going into the, you would have had, you know, Hassel and, and Zach Veen and, and, you know, maybe Jordan Walker too uh, ahead of them. But um, yeah, it, it just seems like from day one and in, in pro ball, like you said, at, uh, what was it? The, the, the alternate training side yeah, instructionally so. came out this year, you know, didn't stay on the field, obviously the whole year, but man, when he was healthy, it sounded pretty, pretty electric. Um, so I, I think, man, those, those are two guys we I could see jumping top 10. I and mean, I, I like Marcelo Meyer too, obviously a lot, uh, but just not as much track record yet. in pro ball as some of these, some of these other guys, but obviously I think he could, he could jump into that mix too. Yeah.
2: The, and that's just a group that I've, I feel very confident in. We're going to get a lot of really good or, or several really good major league players. I, I don't want to cap it on anything, but it's exciting. Um, none of these players are first basemen, Ben. Um, and we don't have too many first basemen on the top 100 overall. I think our top rated uh, first baseman is Spencer Torgelson. After that, we have Tristan Casas. I don't know how many first basemen beyond them, but is is first base, is just the position and the offensive bar you have to clear to rank as a high prospect just high enough that it's just rare in general to have a first base prospect on the top 100? Or is this year's group just bad relative to an average year? And just what are your thoughts on first base prospects in general?
3: Yeah, I thought maybe a little bit of both. I mean, the thing is a lot of the guys who are first basemen in the big leagues were not first basemen in the minor leagues i mean maybe if you're a left-handed thrower increases your chances you you might be at uh at first base already but even then like you 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 probably come up as like a big left fielder and the Mm -hmm. team is trying to squeeze some sort of defensive (laughs) value out of you being able to just you know plug around in left field or you know even at you know right you know like Vlad Jr. obviously came up as a, well, he signed as an out, he signed as a left fielder or as an amateur, was a left fielder. Uh, and the Blue Jays moved into third base. He gets too large and he just is, it doesn't matter because he's just so good anyway. You can put him anywhere. He goes over to first base. But a lot of the, you know, first baseman, the a lot of the major league first basemen of the future are currently at third base or left field or, yep you know, in some cases, even, you know, shortstop, like Miguel Cabrera. Miguel Cabrera was as, the one I was thinking of as you were kind of talking through this. Yeah.
2: Um, I got to see yeah, him play left was, field, I think, with uh, the Carolina Mudcats when I was a kid. So he was he was running around out there in the grass. Hard to imagine that now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have, you know, the obvious guys in Torkelson and Cassis and, and Nick Prado really put himself on, on the map this year. I mean, otherwise, there are a couple guys I like on here, but like, I mean, like Aaron Sabato. You see, the draft for for the Twins was very yeah. underwhelming. I think is a fair so way to. You at least ended it. on a high uh,
2: note. That's the uh, that's the encouraging point for him.
3: <laughs> yeah, but like he might, you know, might be one of the top 10 1st base prospects still in in the minors now, and his his stock has uh, gone down quite mm-hmm. a bit. The, the The two guys I think are the most interesting who maybe are not as famous yet, but I think have a chance to be pretty good Or, or Vinny Pasquantino with the Royals. I think we've talked about him before, but um, you know, later round pick who, I mean, he seems like he can hit control the strike zone hit with power. Like you said, the bar that you've got to clear offensively as a first baseman is, is pretty high, but I think he's got a chance to do it. And then Dustin Harris, with the rangers another really good job um of you know not a not a high profile not a prominent a guy but the performance really sticks out and just the scouting feedback on him too seems pretty strong both both offensively and in terms of what he can do on the on the defensive side too
2: um, well, I can only handle so much first base talk, Ben. so <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we're gonna jump into some listener questions. Um, feel free to let us know if you're just a big first base guy and uh, you want to to counter that claim by me. But uh, yeah, first base a lot, was... of,
3: a lot of a lot of people were, you know it's funny, like on international signings, mm-hmm. people like you'll tweet about it and be or some like I'll t- like link to the list of signings and stuff, and people will be like, like Blue Jays fans will be like, why do we sign so many? Like, why do we, why is our top signing a catcher? Like we already have like, Gabriel Moreno and Kirk and like McGuire. I'm like, or like, well, why, why do we sign so many shortstops? You like, want to sign like a Dominican first base? Like they don't exist. Yeah. Like they're all playing. Typically we don't move up the defensive spectrum. So
2: it seems like a smart yeah,
3: bet. <laughs> yeah. They're playing shortstop or third base if they're just like, well, Ben, in the NFL, <laughs> in the NFL,
2: you draft for positional need, so that has to be what baseball teams do as
3: well. I know it's uh, <laughs> sign more more Venezuelan first baseman and left fielders. Can we get some more second baseman? That's what we need. We truly <laughs> exactly. need second base. So we'll do that on our next podcast.
2: <laughs> but now we've got a few good listener questions we wanted to jump into. Um, Ray McKenzie on Instagram asks. Uh, who is the best 20 and under prospect in the San Francisco Giants system? Um, I guess, honestly, the simplest answer for this would be we have our Giants list on the website, and you can see how we rank them. There are two who are under 20 on the list. Um, I'll give you the names here. Luis Matos is ranked uh, number three on that list, and Averson Ortega, correct me if I'm pronouncing that wrong, Ben, is number nine on that list. I think Luis Matos, as we record this, he's, he's barely qualifying there he turns 20 later this month um so if you don't want to count him for this season then it would be averson ortega by our rankings matos is a really intriguing offensive prospect um who actually he was i think one of the only ones at the, in in josh's report he did the giants for us right correct me if i'm wrong ben mm-hmm. um he was the only player in the minors who hit better than 300 while striking out fewer than 70 times uh with at least 450 at bats that's encouraging um, and then Averson Ortega is a much um, more defensive-oriented prospect now with really good grades, um, and just how he does everything at shortstop. And I think still has some, some offensive promise as well. It's not like a, just a glove only at this point. And he's still 18 years old. So, so those would be the two, um, two answers, two Venezuelan prospects. How were these guys seen at um, prior to getting into pro ball, Ben?
3: Yeah, Matos was always a guy... You know what, I like I saw him like once or twice, I think he went like hitless every time, but like <laughs> everybody else I talked to ever like, especially like, the Venezuelan scouts were like, mm-hmm. I don't know, like this is like one of the best hitters <laughs> in the country. Yeah. Like he's not that strong yet. Like he's not a great runner, you know, some tweener profile risk mm-hmm. on him. Like maybe it's left field or you know, how much power is he going to get to, but he does have a lot of bat speed and he does perform really well in games. And went out first season was, was pretty, pretty, pretty outstanding. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hit for a lot more power. I think than people were expecting his, his speed might've ticked up a little bit. I think he was like a seven, seven ish, like seven O type runner, like, you know, a little bit below average in, in the 60, not a, not a seven on a, two to eight skill, um, but it, it sounds like there's a chance now he could stick in, in center field. And like, like you talked about, he's as good, if, if not better than advertised as a hitter and, and driving the ball with some more, some more impact early on, like you said, he's still 19. So uh, a little earlier than, than expected to. So yeah, he's, uh, he's a pretty exciting, exciting player. I'm trying to think who, who one of the better players would be
2: who I just never got a good look at after you, you said that about Montes, how Hey, never saw him hit. I know for, for Josh Norris, it's funny. Every time he saw Shane McClanahan, I think he was terrible. So that, that was a, a very easy one that I remember that I always laughed about with Josh because for whatever reason, he was McClanahan's bad luck charm. He never saw a good look. And I, I don't
3: know who
2: would be the player that is for me. Are there any others that come to mind for you? Trying to think. Mine would
3: be. I remember seeing Raphael Devers a couple times. It mm-hmm. was like the same thing, and but like everybody was 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 like, no, 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 this guy. <laughs> and I could see like he had a good swing. Um, not a. I mean, I mean to his credit, he stayed at third base with mm-hmm. a pretty similar body to what he looked like when he was you know fifteen, yeah, sixteen years old. I mean, you can imagine people thought, all right, well, there's certainly some. First base risk here. Like we talked about, almost all these infielders in the Dominican Republic are, you know, taking ground balls at shortstop. He was already at third base because it's, you know, there's no Mm -hmm. chance he's going to stay at at shortstop. He was already at third base, but uh, just a really, really easy swing and just like a hitting savant. I mean, could Mm -hmm. hit lefties, righties, fastballs, breaking balls up, down, not like a big power guy but he would hit the ball to to all fields so it was pretty consistent feedback that I mean our, our top three players in the class that year were one Eloy Jimenez two Glaber Torres the Cubs signed both of them and three was was Rafael Devers so uh pretty consistent feedback mm-hmm. that everybody was saying I don't know this guy's like you just saw like this <laughs> like the two worst days of his life and then uh, in pro ball I just remember, I see, I remember seeing like Trevor story in double A just looked totally overmatched. <laughs> I, I, I also saw like the worst series I think of his life. He, he was just striking out. He looked totally lost. I think it was early in the season mm-hmm. too, if, if I remember right. And you know, one of the best shortstops in baseball.
2: <laughs> it's funny how that works sometimes. Um, we got another one yeah. from Ed Casey on Twitter. Says hi, Carlos and Ben. The college catching crop for the upcoming draft looks pretty deep. Of the four players in the BA top fifty, I think he's referring to our college list, but these are still the four top college catchers on the board: uh, Kevin Prada, Daniel Susak, Logan Tanner, and Hayden Dunhurst. Who would you rate the best for each of the five tools? And he also adds, if you if you want to skip run, that is fine. I think that's funny for <laughs> a, a funny note for catchers. I, actually, I do think the for the run, Kevin Parada was always a pretty good athlete for a catcher in high school. Enough that people felt confident that he could move around the outfield fine. So let's let's just give him the run tool by default. I think that is probably fair. And then the other ones for me are are fairly clear cut. I think I would go and Ben, I'll let you give your tools if you if you have opinions here. Um, I would go hit Kevin Parada. Um, and it'd be Prada over Susac for me. Those would be the two that I would consider here. And I go Prada just cause his track record as an underclassman. I think the swing is a little bit more compact. Um, I believe the contact rate is better. I would have to double check that to make sure. Um, but we just get a little bit better feedback on just a pure hit tool for Prada. Power would be Daniel Susak. He's, he's bigger for a catcher than you would expect. He's got a, a good frame with power. Now the swing is a little bit longer which is why I would go with Broad on the hit tool. But his power production is really impressive. And I think on best tools balloting for the, the class overall, he's gotten a few votes for just best power in the class. So that seems like a, a safe um, winner in that category. And then for field and throw or defense and arm, whatever you want to call it, I think Logan Tanner would probably take both of those pretty handily. Hayden Dunhurst would be second for me for, for arm. He threw out, I believe, almost 40% of base runners last spring. And he's got a plus arm, but Logan Tanner almost universally is regarded as the best um, throwing catcher in this class. He gets he gets double plus grades quite a bit. And he's also gotten pretty good feedback on his his catch and throw. And I think both Parada and Daniel Susak would be a uh, distant third and fourth in that category of this group of players just for for overall defense. So that's kind of how I'd break it down. Ben, do you, you have any
3: strong takes or disagreements with me on this one? I mean, I'm I'm with you on Parada, especially on the offensive side. I know mm-hmm. you've been driving his. You were you were all over Tyler Soderstrom and Soderstrom in yeah. high school and I need Parada Prada to too, hit for so some um...
2: impact this year, so I can keep claiming to be uh to be right on him. I know that's the biggest question with him is how, how much power is he going to get to. So hopefully, he continues to perform because I I think he might be the most adamant I've been like on a player's bandwagon. Right, like it's like him, maybe Bobby Wood Jr. But Bobby Wood Jr., I mean, he's, like, in a different in different tier of
3: prospect. I feel like he doesn't count. Our minor league player of the year, yeah, I think. I, yeah, uh, I,
2: don't, I mean, high school player of the year, minor league player of the year probably will be an MVP soon. So, you know, some, someone's going to get a draft pick for that one. Royals are going to get an extra draft pick for Bobby Wood Jr. being the MVP.
3: Oh, if he starts the year on the <laughs> – He's on the top
2: 100 prospect list, and before he's an arbitration-eligible player, whatever the rules are.
3: What do you got on yeah, that one? Yeah, that, that thing came out, like, like a couple days, I think before January 15th. So like, mm-hmm. I don't know that I fully processed everything in there, but the, the idea is they what, didn't either. So that you, so... Right. So, but the idea is what, if, if a guy is, I mean, what, potentially JJ on our about top it. 100, I'll, I'll link
2: JJ's me? story to it in the show notes and you guys can get the full details, but yeah, basically entering the year, it was like if a player ranks on a top 100 and then he ranks like top three or top five in MVP Cy Young. Then the team gets an extra draft pick. <laughs> like that was, the, uh, that was the basic premise, I believe. I'm pulling JJ's story up right now just to make sure I'm not completely butchering this, but it was weird.
3: I just don't understand how that would help with service time manipulation. And, and if anything, my concern would be that it it would happen more on the back end of the season. Like, okay, we're, we could bring this guy up in August to help now, but what, hey, if we keep him in the minor leagues longer and don't exhaust his rookie eligibility now, then we could get a draft pick for him if we have him on on the opening day roster next year. Or, or just even just – I mean, again, it would depend on exactly where the draft pick would be, but I can't imagine you're going to get a – I can't imagine you're going to get a first-round pick out of this, right? I mean, it's yeah. somewhere I've got, um, after the
2: – It was not defined. I, I'll read to you what, what JJ had, and this is on the site too. I believe it's free for everyone. It says, as part of the January 13th proposal to MLB – to the MLB Players Association Major League Baseball owners propose a new incentive system – where a team that kept a rookie on the roster all season could receive a bonus draft pick if that player went on to finish top three in Rookie of the Year, MVP, or Cy Young balloting over the first three seasons of their MLB career. The idea is that the possibility of gaining an extra draft pick would provide an extra incentive for teams to promote their most talented players rather than gaming their service time. Uh, yada, yada. JJ explained service time manipulation. Uh, and then in the third paragraph, it says, according to multiple reports... The proposal the owners made would limit the extra picks to those players who ranked on a top 100 prospects list before the season. What top 100 prospects list or lists would be used is not clear. Um, So yeah, a lot of, a lot of things not clear there, but I tend to agree with you that I don't really understand how this would prevent service time manipulation. And as JJ says, what is the point in even putting a top 100 bracket on this at all, if that's what you wanted to do. So I don't know.
3: Yeah. Hopefully and if you're the Cubs, like if you're the Cubs and, and you're making your decision on Chris Bryant, like I, th- I think they still would say, "We're going to keep Chris Bryant in the minor leagues and get an extra year of Chris Bryant <laughs> yeah. on our team instead of having a draft pick. <clears throat> I think the Mariners would do the same thing with, or would have done the same thing with Jared Kalanick. <clears throat> I don't think that situation was as, Quite as cut and dry as you know chris bryant was sure. you know it, it'll be the same thing with julio rodriguez like if, if this rule is in place julio rodriguez is, is starting the year in triple a anyway I, I don't think yeah. they're gonna i'd rather i think might be the best year. one to be
2: honest i mean what do we think about adley like who's catching in baltimore right now
3: do they have a catcher <laughs> I, don't, I don't i don't even have, <laughs> they even have one on their 40 i mean he's clearly yeah he's clearly the best option and Again, even if this rule is in place, the, the Orioles are going to say no, no, no. We'd rather have an extra year of, you know, one an of the top three, yeah, then of 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 a player who could be, you know, a, a per, you know, a perennial All Star MVP type guy. we we'd rather have him than just have an extra draft pick. So I, I don't even think that shifts the shift, you know, I don't think that even moves the needle all that much when it comes to making these decisions.
2: I agree. Um, we got a couple more questions that we can get into. Um, Stephen Hardesty on Twitter asks, who are one or two of the 2022 high school draft prospects who you see the most potent- potential to raise their draft stock this spring? Um, Ben, I think you pointed out one earlier in the podcast that I had down for this question and that's Cam Collier. Just because of his situation and just being so young in junior college, I just think, think that gives him like more leverage to move himself up or down draft boards. So he would be one. But I've got two like projection athletes that I'm really high on. Uh, and I feel like if they come out this spring with a lot more strength, fill out their bodies, their like underlying tools and skill set that they already showed last summer. I mean, I think both of these guys are top 50 on our hundred as it is. So maybe, maybe this question is designed for like guys who are lower down or maybe not even ranked yet, but I'm very high on Jackson holiday and Justin Crawford. I think both have really impressive just physical projection that could be coming with their bodies Um, in terms of strength gains. Justin Crawford is another, maybe more interesting than holiday because he wasn't seen as frequently as holiday was, but he's insanely projectable. He runs, he's like a double plus runner. Just it's, it's crazy to watch him just stride through the outfield. He is so quick and so fast and it's such an easy running stride. He's got good bat to ball skills. He doesn't have a ton of son strength. of
3: son. Of, sorry. Just son of no, no. Carl Crawford too. So yeah, both these guys, <laughs> his, big league bloodlines, his, his, dad, <laughs> his dad could run a little too.
2: Yeah. So both big league bloodlines, which is, is common in this year's draft draft class. There's a lot of those players. So I think both, both of them, if they come out stronger, and kind of just do what they've done in previous summers, they have a chance to go really high. Um, there are probably yep. some pitchers that I could name, but those were the ones that came to
3: mind for me first. Yeah, those are those are good calls. And like you said, too, with the bloodlines, I, I think sometimes teams have more – it just gives them a little extra confidence in, in those players and could boost them up some. Uh, but, I, I mean, just on their own – merits that yeah. you know whoever their dads were aside i, I really like both of those players yeah. this summer and very different like body like you said both have room to gain strength but kind of different body to like crawford is more of like a really long mm-hmm. lean guy and like you said him and his dad are you know <laughs> uh both supreme athletes with outstanding speed but i i was surprised by just how much power. Uh, crawford was showing during bp um at least at the pg national showcase at the at tropicana field what what day did he summer.
2: did he take bp there before i got down i know you're there either day or two before i was there because i feel like crawford is one of the players who i have a lot of or, or i lack a lot of in-person looks compared to some other players
3: i think he was in the i think he was in the middle days i definitely remember him running so (laughs) so maybe
2: his bp i'm just i'm just blanking on it but i definitely remember him running yeah Yeah.
3: but he's i mean he's a real wiry (laughs) dude i mean he's i could see him getting stronger and you know putting on some more uh like he's what six three 170 ish. It looks like he, he can really run
2: frame. And he might be, he might be taller than Drew. Although I know Drew has has added a few inches of height recently.
3: It's um, yeah, he's, he's never going to get fat. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think he could if he, if he tried, but I I think there's some more room to get stronger and and try the ball with some, some more impact. And, And I thought he showed some pretty interesting back control and, and adjustability to mm-hmm. to his swing too from from the left side I, I guess on a you know for a for a pitcher I brought him up before but uh Noah Schultz kind of you know for some of the same yeah that's a really good one reasons too just on the pitching side I mean talked about Yuri Perez is a 6'8 pitcher um he can look up and look into the eyes of Noah Schultz who's uh 6'9", nine, I don't know, maybe he's six ten. By the time the draft comes, I mean, uh, he's he's super interesting because he's a like we said, a six foot nine lefty, comes from a tough arm slot, and another guy with really good body control and yeah. really good spin on all of his stuff. When we were talking not,
2: about yeah when we were talking about Yuri, I I just thought of Noah Schultz just in in the, in the sense of tall pitcher with really good body control that's that's maybe the first thing that stood out to me when I was watching Schultz I think it was perfect in national with you just how well he repeated his delivery with such long limbs and and so much to control up there it was really impressive on on top of the spin stuff that you were about to talk about
3: yeah the 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 spin on all this stuff is good and like so so with Yuri Perez I saw him pitch up in up in Mocha in the Dominican Republic like up in like the Cibao region one time he i think at that time he's like he was throwing like mid 80s at that time but he was also like six five maybe Mm -hmm. like 160 pounds right so you can just (laughs) see i was like i really like this guy i was like not obviously anywhere near as much as i like him now but i was like oh i really like this guy just because there's there's so much upside physically with this guy i should be throwing really hard once he puts on some weight and puts on some strength and by you know, I think by the time he signed, I think it was maybe upper eighties. They signed him, he goes out and pitches at their either their tricky league or instructional league. He's touching ninety-two. Mm-hmm. This was in 2019. So the 2020 season obviously gets banged, comes over for instructional league. He's up to ninety-five. Now you know, the next year, 2021, I think he was up to 97. So it's been this steady velocity progression for Yuri Perez. And I wonder if we see something like that with Schultz or maybe even a bigger pop for, for him this spring, where right now he's not, I mean, he's not throwing 96, 97. Yeah. What more, more low nineties.
2: Yeah. Mostly he was sitting in the low nineties for the most part, I think topping out at like 94, maybe he touched a five, but yeah, he was of, especially of the top high school arms in the class. He has the, lowest velocity and i i don't say that in a, a pejorative way at all it just of of these high school pitchers who are in the 90s his velocity is the least present like impact of
3: right so but if he comes out in you know may or June, he's i mean he's what in illinois so probably yep. later in the in the year so but it, you know by the time the draft comes
0: hey uh the draft is it, later
3: so good for him right so if if the draft is here and we have a six foot nine left-handed pitcher with like a pretty good you know really good spin on both his fastball and his you know you know breaking ball whatever kind of some people think it's a curve I think he calls it a definitely a slider whatever curve it is
2: velocity separation but yeah whatever you want to call yeah, it it's yeah, whatever
3: yeah <laughs> yeah I might have even reversed that because I, I don't have it in front of me right now but um, it's a, nat, it's a, it, I, I really like his breaking ball, whatever you want to call no, it. No, I think you're right. I think he does um,
2: call it a slider, but, um,
3: but if, if, yeah. if you have all that and all of a sudden now, instead of, you know, topping that, like a, you know, threes and fours, he's throwing 97 topping 98 like that. I, I that's a guy who I, I know we have him like in the first round range already on our board, but another guy who I think could move up if we see some more. Uh, a little more power behind the fastball this spring. Yep. I like that one, Ben.
2: Um, Our last question comes from John on Instagram who says, does the age of a high school position player being drafted matter more, less, or the same as a pitcher? Um, I think it's just a hitter Uh, that, that seems to, the industry seems to care more about age for, for hitters, for, for good and for ill. For whatever reason i think we've talked about this before ben and I don't, I don't know if you have any um extended thoughts on this but um go ahead if you do
3: i think it i mean i think it still matters for for pitchers um you know, I, I like i i think there's a pretty maybe maybe more for underclassmen like there's a pretty significant difference between you know 17 and 16 and I think there's a difference between 18 and set, like, even for 19 and 18, there's, you know, we, we can see guys make pretty significant gains in terms of strength and, and velocity and, and stuff when, you know, we have a gap of, of a year uh, or sometimes even, you know, 18 months for, for pitchers uh, or, or even topping a little over that for pitchers who are, you know, the oldest guys in the class versus the youngest guys. Um, So I I do think it's a factor that teams have, or at least I have in mind when I'm trying to evaluate and and line up these, these players, but at the same time, you you are looking at each player individually, I mean, Jack Leiter was old for a, a high school pitcher, right? Like that's, that's why he was draft eligible (laughs) as a, a college uh, sophomore, second year, coach, freshman, freshman, whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and he obviously, you know, he was a first round talent coming out of high school. He ended up at Vanderbilt for, you know, signability reasons. But I, I don't think that really affected too much the way teams evaluated his, his, just his, his future future projection i guess so to speak but um <laughs> it feels like it's, to it's, me
2: the the older players are criticized more as hitters at the top end of things than as pitchers if that if that makes sense and and i really feel like i don't know i mean i i get why i guess but i mean guys like jared kelanick and brett Beatty were very old for their class i mean bobby Wood jr there was even talk of him of bobby Wood jr being old for his class so like i think Jordan it's probably, Robert, right uh yeah i think so um but all of these uh, all the ones last year throw me off a little just because the draft date is moved back so all of the numbers that i see in the spreadsheet of just ages like everyone was a little older so it was i need to like fully calibrate that but yeah all of these guys who have been really good players they were criticized because they were too old so i think it's probably they all played
3: they all still went pretty high though yeah that's what i mean <laughs> but
2: like that's that's true that's a good call like despite maybe that's maybe that's the easiest criticism to give them because of their profiles at the time they're oh they're just old but they do everything else well i mean but you are right they did still go high it does seem like the whole age thing is just a little I feel like we talk about it more than it actually matters at this point i mean it does matter but to the to the degree that we talk about it and get asked about it i feel like it it's just another factor and a minor factor among many other factors the the age versus level in pro ball conversation is maybe more interesting to me than just, are you old for the class or not? Cause you can adjust. I mean, if you're pushed aggressively, if you're an old hitter and you're pushed like Bobby Wood, no one's talking about Bobby Wood junior being too old right now. Like he flew through the minor league system. So I don't know, maybe I'm just tired of I, talking about age.
3: <laughs> I think, I think with pitchers, you can also, it's easier to evaluate them independent of their competition. Yes. So, so if you are evaluating a 19 year old high school hitter, I mean, not, not that you're going to see him facing great competition, typically just during his spring high school season, but, but even against good, good arms the summer before, you know, you, you know, he's a little bit older, maybe a little bit more physically mature um in in some cases than his you know the, than the other players in his class and it and it just to, you know w- with a hitter it, it to, how you evaluate him you can you know you can evaluate obviously just the the raw speed and you know uh fielding and arm strength and and raw power uh but the and and uh, you know evaluate how a player's swing works but in in games it, it depends who the pitchers that he's facing whereas with a pitcher I mean it's it's not ideal I mean you want him to be facing good competition but you can tell just the quality of a pitcher's raw stuff coming out of his hands you know whether it's you know a top high school hitter in the box or if it's you know, me or you. I mean, it'll obviously look <laughs> a little better if it's me yeah, or you. Yeah, 95 below.
2: will look a little different if we're in the box versus a good hitter. But yeah, yeah like the point yeah, is the, the, raps, a good one.
3: The soto, the Trackman, or, or even your eyes, like it's it's all mm-hmm. more or less going to read the same <laughs> no matter who's in, in the box when you're looking at a pitcher. No, it's a good comment. Um, thank you for
2: the question, John. And thank you to everyone who who's sent in questions. That's all of them for today. Um, but you can always send them to uh, the Twitter account at future pro Pod. you can send them to Ben on Twitter at Ben Badler. You can send them to me at Carlos a Colazzo. All of those will be linked in the show notes. Um, Ben, is there anything that we did not touch on that you want to mention before we get out of here? Anything that you want to plug? What do you have coming up? What should our listeners be on the lookout for?
3: Uh, yeah, just appreciate everybody following along for the international signing coverage. Uh, It's funny, I probably got the most sleep I've had in the last two months on January 14th because my wife took my uh, infant daughter over to to her folks' house so I could just sleep (laughs) and and just uh, be alone the night before. So that's an MVP uh, move.
2: She, uh,
3: yeah, (laughs) she deserves a lot for that. (laughs) Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so that was, but it was, I mean, it was a great day for all these kids and their families. And it was just cool to have like a, good day for baseball like I mean I don't really care about MLB's image like that's it's not really a concern for me but it's, it's just cool for you know fans and everybody just have like a good moment I think <laughs> right, uh, of actual like baseball news and transactions happening so uh, I'm sure the Hall of Fame announcement will be a great day for baseball too right so <laughs> uh, maybe oh. not but no I mean we I mean it's it's weird right so like so much of you know obviously the major league teams are or the owners are in a lockout right now but everything else that we do is kind of the same right like college college baseball is starting like we just put out our our draft rankings high Mm -hmm. school season's Mm -hmm. about to start international signings are going on like the uh, upcoming classes are still getting scouted like minor league player i mean 40 man guys are not going to play but like you know minor league players are, are coming up so draft rankings we got out now our top 100 list we've got more international coverage um you know we're growing our staff so it's just i don't know i feel i feel like it's it's, it's weird that obviously it it sucks that we're in a lockout but like it's just from our baseball america perspective of following prospects and so much beneath the major league level like so this is just like an awesome time of year otherwise.
2: Yeah. You, you summed up my thoughts on that pretty much perfectly. This week, it's felt like we've had a ton of really exciting content. I mean, just outside of anything that I'm writing, just stuff that the staff is putting out. Uh, it's just really engaging, um, really learning a lot about the game through just working with, with all of you guys. And January does always feel like this. It just feels like a lot of things are starting to happen. We're anticipating a lot of these seasons getting rolling. And, and every year of Baseball America, the season starts earlier. Um, than if you're just following the major league game, I mean, baseball is not just major league baseball. There's plenty more going on and that will go on regardless of whatever happens with the lockout. Um, so definitely get invested. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you are invested in, in prospects in general, I would be shocked if you are a uh, major league only fan listening to what, two plus hours of us talk about prospects. I so say, I don't, if I don't you are tell two you hours
3: this. and if you're two hours and change into this, podcast and you're not interested in prospects i don't know what's <laughs>
2: someone is, um, I don't, someone I don't is holding you the, down and forcing you to because they're, they're psychotic <laughs> um but yeah no thank you guys for listening thank you to everyone who has supported the show whether that's just by listening or reviewing or rating the podcast or sharing it with a friend um we really appreciate that um and you can do that on itunes i think and you can listen on whatever podcast app you prefer um So thanks again for everyone. Hopefully you guys are getting excited for the season. We certainly are. Um, For Ben, I'm Carlos. We'll talk to you next
0: time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders,